<clears throat> so for scripture before our sermon today, I'm reading from the New Century Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18 through chapter 2, 5. And this ties in really well with what pastor's been preaching about wisdom. The subtitle is Christ is God's wisdom and power. So... The teaching about the cross is foolishness to those who are being lost. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written in the scriptures, I will cause the wise men to lose their wisdom. I will make the wise men un unable to understand. Where is the wise person? Where is the educated person? Where is the skilled talker of this world? God has made the wisdom of the world foolish. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. So God chose to use the message that sounds foolish to save those who believe. The Jews ask for miracles and the Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a big problem to the Jews and it is foolishness to those who are not Jews. But Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those people God has called, Jews and Greeks. Even the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, look at what you were when God called you. Not many of you were wise in the way the world judges wisdom. Not many had great influence. Not many of you came from important families. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose what the world thinks is unimportant and what the world looks down on and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. God did this so that no one can brag in his presence. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. In Christ, we are put right with God and have been made holy and have been set free from sin. So as the scripture says, if someone wants to brag, he should only brag about the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come preaching God's secret with fancy words or a show of human wisdom. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget about everything except Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and fearful and trembling. My teaching and preaching were not with words of human wisdom that persuade people, but with proof of the power that the Spirit gives. This was so that your faith would be in God's power and not in human wisdom. Hey, good morning. 
My name is Jared, Jared Unruh. I grew up here in Enid. Um, got to know uh, your pastor more recently. I've known him for years, but more recently uh, through the YMCA, where I have the privilege of serving as the uh, chaplain there at the YMCA. So I see Craig regularly working out, so you should know that he's trying to stay fit so that he can continue uh, the ministry that the Lord has called him to here. Um, and uh, when I was visiting with him about his ministry and about what you guys have been going through, one of the ways I wanted to encourage him was to, to, to tell him, to ask him or say to him, hey, I'd, I'd love to come and uh, preach if you ever have a need. Uh, I know uh, that he has a, a heart for that. And um, so I was grateful when he asked me to come and uh, preach while he was going to be away. And so this morning... Uh, the message that he has, as you've already heard, he kind of gave me that, said you guys have been going through a series on wisdom. And so today is meant, this sermon is meant to complement what God has already been teaching you through his word regarding wisdom and foolishness. And so uh, as we begin, let's ask the Lord to help us in our understanding. Gracious Heavenly Father, the one who sees all and knows all. It's not a surprise to you that those of us that are here this morning are here. Um, God, we, we believe, although we don't fully understand how you are working all things, but you are. The messages that we need to hear, the gospel that is proclaimed, this word from 1 Corinthians is not by accident to those of us who are hearing today. And so, Lord, we ask... That as we submit to your word, that we would take hold of the truth, the wisdom, the authority which is made implicit to us here and which is made known to us in the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus. Lord, would you transform our minds today? Would you center them on your message and on your purposes and would you renew our confidence in all that you are for us in Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we all said, Amen. Well, I think to, to properly understand the Bible's teaching about wisdom, the wisdom of God, the, the foolishness of man, and the redeeming work of Christ, we must, we must first go back. Uh, all the way back, if you were, looking at where it all started in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And as we do, I am confident that we will better understand the message uh, today that Paul and what he's doing. He's appealing to the church in Corinth to be united around the gospel, to put no confidence, no hope in human wisdom. Now, as many of you know, uh, about original sin and about how the first man and woman ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how it was um, the only tree in the paradise garden, uh, paradise garden that God had made that, that he said, you shall not eat from this tree. Matter of fact, it was the only prohibition that we are told that God gave them. And you also know that before Adam and Eve disobeyed and rebelled against God, they knew him only as the father of joyful permission, 
the one who overwhelmingly said yes to them. So why then did they eat the one thing that God said no to? Well, as you know, in part, it was because the serpent told them that God who said yes so much was actually tricking them, misleading them about his one no. Never mind that God, not the serpent, had created the whole glorious world they inhabited by his powerful world. Never mind, or word. Never mind that God, not the serpent, had provided to them personally life and breath and everything. And never mind that up to that point, God, not the serpent, had been a reliable and wonderful guide. And that in trusting him had resulted in their experience of profound happiness and joy. Never mind the fact that God, even by placing the forbidden tree's fruit within their reach, not the serpent, was granting them the choice to trust him or not, to accept his wisdom and his authority or not, to love him supremely or not. You see, friends, the serpent told them that God was hiding something from them. He said it was something good that God didn't want them to have because it would make them like him, nearly divine. He said it was something that would free them from their perpetual intellectual dependency on God and empower them to think on their own. Something that would surely not kill them, but make them really alive. And God had hidden something from them in this fruit. Genesis 3, 5 says, Satan talking to them, the serpent, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we find that just as Paul writes in Romans 5, 19, and testifies to the fact that for by one man's disobedience, that's through Adam, the many were made sinners and all of the world was affected by this fall. It was all ruined at this point. And Adam and his wife, when they chose not to trust, not to obey, not to supremely love their creator, but instead, when they decided to lean on their own understanding and pursue the hidden treasure of forbidden knowledge by eating the fruit because they thought it would make them wise, we see that God was true to His Word, as He always is. When they ate the fruit, it did, not, it did indeed yield knowledge as their eyes were both opened and they knew they were naked. But the serpent wasn't true to His Word which is always the case with, say, with uh, the serpent. The devil, is, Scripture says, has been lying from the beginning, the father of lies. So serpent wasn't true to his word. The knowledge uh, did not make them like God. It only made them miserable. They immediately experienced dark enlightenment and shame and separation from God. Listen to how Paul described it to the churches, to the believers in Rome in chapter 1, verse 21 of Romans, when he says, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So very quickly, they discovered the tragic truth of Proverbs 14, 12, where it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, friends, the knowledge they thought they wanted was far beyond what they were designed to bear. And just like them, all of us have been laboring under the crushing weight of this burdensome knowledge ever since. You see, you and I, we are not designed to be like God in the fact that we define what is good and evil. Although we try, and the world around us tries to define what is good and what is right, what is wrong and what is evil, we're not designed to define that. Rather, we were designed to be, as Romans 16, 19 says, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And since we have no good apart from God, the beginning of being wise and good and innocent and evil is actually by trusting and obeying Him, listening to His Word and saying, I believe it and I will follow it. So yes, in our humanity, God has designed us to think for ourselves. That's one reason the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was present in the garden. But, friends, He did not design us to think by ourselves. It is not irrational or foolish for limited, contingent creatures like us to depend on the guidance of an omniscient, self-existing creator to know how to live. It is, however, very reasonable for us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts, lean not on our own understanding. That's true wisdom. What is irrational is when we choose to lean on our own understanding, which is the essence of foolishness. This is why, brothers and sisters, God, in the scriptures we see, is at war with mere human wisdom or rebellious leaning on our own understanding and why He does not permit us to know Him through mere wisdom. We cannot know God in and of ourselves. Is what we'll see in the scripture. Each of us must come to God on His terms and not our own. He requires us, as the author John Bloom writes, to hand Him back the fruit from the knowledge of the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we might once again have access to the tree of life. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul lays out three arguments with Old Testament support, appealing to the Corinthians. Because remember, at the very beginning, we didn't read this, but in chapter 1, we see uh, in verse 10 that Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. There was divisions. Some of them were going around saying, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. Well, actually, I like Peter's preaching better. Well, you know me, I'm a purist. I just believe in Jesus Christ. And they were divided on what makes the gospel good? And they were making, you know, these 
these paths where I follow that guy, I follow that guy, who do you all follow? And Paul's saying, you guys are missing the point of the gospel. This is what he's appealing and asking them. He's saying, stop boasting in human wisdom. In other words, stop trying to add your own wisdom to the gospel, to the word of the cross, as though you can make it more superior than it already is. And I should say that when Paul uses this language of the cross, he has in mind not just the the crucifixion itself, although yes, that's part of it, but he has in mind all of God's promises, all of God's plans and provision to redeem his people. In its fullest sense, this means it's total, God's total revelation, all of Scripture, because the cross of Christ is at the very center of the revealed Word of God. In its message, in its purpose, in its timing, and on and on, it stands as an absolute uncompromising contradiction to the mere human way of thinking and doing things. This is why we find God saying through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my ways, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as I think it will be useful for you, um, as I preach, to follow through these arguments that Paul is giving to the Corinthian church here, uh, contrasting their boasting in men and in the name of wisdom. So let's first look at the, the first point, the gospel message itself from verses 18 through 25, which was already read for us, so I might not read the whole thing, but listen to uh, kind of this language. 18 through 25 is the first argument. It says, for the, word of the cro- for the word of the cross, we can also say the gospel, right? The, the good news of what God has done. It is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Okay, so where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the, the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know him. Here's that knowing God, understanding who he is. Through the wisdom of the world, no one can know God. But it pleased God through the folly of what is preached, this word of the cross, to save those who believe. And he goes on to say Jews and Greeks. Jews and Gentiles, how they stumble and how they look for things and it doesn't make sense to them. So what Paul is essentially doing here, he is saying, okay friends, you think you can uh, take the gospel message, the word of the cross, literally here the doctrine or the logos, it's the same word there, is something you can take and sprinkle a little human wisdom here and a little philosophy there and a little dash of self-determined elegance there and, and somehow make it more attractive? He said, that's ludicrous. That's, that's downright foolish thinking. Just, just consider what is being taught. It's a crucified Messiah. 
no one in their natural right mind would make a bloody, humiliating, shameful Roman execution on a cross the heart and soul of their message. No one. Just, it would be like you today, many of you, I don't know, maybe some of you are wearing a cross necklace. It would be much like uh, wearing a necklace with an electric chair on it. Who would do that? Who would say, this is what I am going after? This is my main message. This is what it's all about. And that's why both Jews and Gentiles were scandalized by this Christian message. And Paul, he goes right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't pull any punches. Verse 18, he says, it's about life and death. You see, the gospel message, it divides everyone. Not into Jews and Gentiles, although I think there's still a category that exists in God's economy about uh, uh, His special people, the Jews. But more than that, it divides people into believers and unbelievers. Those who are, as the scripture says, perishing and those who are being saved. And each and every one of us, all of us, are in this process where you are either being saved by God or we are being destroyed by God, perishing. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral, neutral position. Friends, what you believe about Jesus, the crucified Messiah, determines your position before a holy God. It's saved to eternal life or eternal death. And by death... The Bible doesn't mean annihilation in which you just cease to exist. It means forever, constant, conscious punishment in hell away from the good grace and mercy of God. That's what death means. So Paul is thinking, talking to his friends here. Perhaps someone might understand a message of a Messiah who stood for power and splendor and triumph. And perhaps they'd understand most likely a crucifixion which was known for weakness and humiliation and defeat. But when you put those together, no one would understand that. Not to them, not to us in our natural wisdom. It's, it's, it's kind of like an oxymoron. Kids, you know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is saying something like a married bachelor. Or it's like saying a square circle. Kids, have you ever seen a square circle? It doesn't make sense. It's not, it, you can't have a square circle. It's a contradiction in terms. It's impossible to comprehend. There's simply no way that Christ crucified could fit into their mere understanding either of who God is or of his scriptures. And this is why Paul says in verse 23, it is a stumbling block. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a roadblock impeding the Jews to come to him because they can't comprehend this. Now, you'll remember the Jews, what they used to do, um, they wouldn't crucify people, but they would stone people, Right? And when they did stone people, particularly those who were blasphemous, they would hang on a tree. Because in Deuteronomy, it told them that 
Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And then you can understand why Paul, when um, before he was converted, you can understand why Paul was coming and he was furious and passionately murdering and killing Christians because they were uh, chasing after and following a man who was hung on a tree. And he's like, that man is cursed by God. And you're saying that he's the son of God? How can that be? I don't understand it. It's ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. Until the Lord woke Paul up on the road to Damascus and he can see Jesus for who he is and all his beauty and all his glory. And then Paul writes in Galatians that Jesus became the curse for us. He was hung on a tree for us. And also, to the Gentiles, in verse 23, he says, they seek wisdom. Uh, a well-known graffito um, artist in Rome, he depicts the Christian worshiper standing before a crucified figure with the body of a man and the head of a donkey. This is what they thought of Christian, the Christian message, to, to believe in that gospel, to believe in the message of the cross was ludicrous. Again, it was foolishness to them. And Paul points the Corinthians to the Old Testament saying the cross of Christ is God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Quoting in verse 19 from Isaiah 29, 14, God says, I will do this. It's a promise. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So in Jesus' death on the cross, God is bringing an end to human wisdom and self-sufficiency. It's God doing, it is God undoing what was done in the garden. So brothers and sisters, you and I, we underestimate God's wisdom and, his pow and the power of the cross when we measure the gospel according to our own way of thinking. And don't we see churches doing this all the time? Instead of seeing how faithful they can be to the gospel message, how saturated they can be in the gospel through its leadership, through their budget, through their programs, through their outreach, they try to see how innovative they can be. How can we attract unbelievers? Which our text says that that's impossible. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' perfect life and his death and his resurrection is unattractive. It's nonsense to those who are perishing. But to those, God has opened their eyes. It is life. You see, the definite plan and wisdom of God to, save his, uh, to have his son drink the bitter cup of wrath by dying the death he didn't deserve in the place of hopeless, undeserving, dirty, sinful, guilty, rebellious, and corrupt men and women is indeed the most awesome and glorious act, act of love and grace that there ever is and ever will be. We will be singing about it for all eternity. God goes on to say here that no one chooses to believe and to treasure this gospel apart from God's saving grace. And this is where it leads right into Paul's next argument. 
verses 26 through 31. He says, all right, y'all, in his good southern accent, look in the mirror. Who in the name of mere human wisdom would have chosen you all to be the new people of God? Look at verse 26 through 31 with me. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, bringing them to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, uh, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is as it is written. Let him who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So by worldly standards... Paul's saying the Corinthian church membership wasn't that beautiful. They had very few famous, wealthy, highly educated, powerful, influential people when they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was likely that when they did come to faith in Christ, when they did become Christians, they actually lost a great deal of prestige and influence and income. And so what Paul is doing, he is reminding them of what they were before they believed, reminding them that the gospel is for those that have nothing to offer the king. It's not like they could come and say, hey, everybody, look at me. Or, hey, God, I really deserve to be on your team. You should save me. They had nothing to commend before the Lord. It is only for those who come humbly to trust and obey. You notice the words, it uses it four times in just these six verses, the word calling or the word God chose. Now, this is the language of election. Love it or hate it, it's here. It's right there in the text, and it refers to the saving call of God, the the effectual call of God, meaning that if God calls you, you will be justified, sanctified, and glorified, as Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 8. 29 through 30. Essentially, Paul says to them, you know what sort of sort of persons you were when God called you, and you know what and you know that he did not accept you as his children because you were smarter, wealthier, stronger, or had more had more to offer him than others. I think he's asking them to consider this question and I'll ask you the same. What is it about you that pleased God enough to rescue you? In other words, why would would God save you? Why did God smile on you and send his son for you? What did you do? How great were you? That's what he's saying to them. And I think that's what the text is saying to us. You see, if salvation is by God's grace alone, then it is completely dependent on God's action alone. You can't have salvation by grace with apart from God's choosing and His election. 
This passage drives us to humility. That's what the doctrine of election does. It causes us to stop boasting in ourselves and in our goodness and in our works and turn our attention to God and say, but if it wasn't for you, then I wouldn't be saved. And that's what's meant in verse 31 when he quotes from Jeremiah, 20, uh, Jeremiah the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Listen to, to what it says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, righteousness, justice in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Verse 30 here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says... Our righteousness, our sanct- that is our right standing before God, our holiness, if you were, our sanctification, our redemption is all because of Him. You need to see that. Look at it with me. Verse 30, I kind of read it backwards, but let me read it again. Paul says, and because of Him, I don't know if you underline in your Bible, but I would, I would highlight that. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's because God chose. I love the humble position that the great London Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon takes when he writes, and quoting, he says, I am quite certain that if, I had not, if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me right before I, I, I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find, my, find in myself why he should have looked upon me with such, such special love. Brothers and sisters, are you trusting in God? Are you believing in Him, in His goodness, in His purposes? Or are you trusting in yourself? Look what I did. Look how I came to Jesus. Now the last argument Paul gives in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he calls them to remember again. He says, guys, remember my preaching when I came to you? Who in the name of wisdom would have come like I did with such weakness? Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which is what they all wanted, right? Tickling of the ears, something that they could just follow along. Man, he is so good. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Rehearsing one more piece of history for them, Paul says, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God and both my content and my form were messy. 
by worldly standards, my sermon was not great. This is good news for preachers. Because you know that I'm working on this sermon. I'm thinking, man, I want this to be good. I want people to understand it. I want them to know it. And here Paul's saying, I didn't come like that. I didn't come trying to flatter you and tickle your ears. He's saying, I came preaching Christ and Him crucified. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I sought to do. Paul probably was a really good speaker. He probably was and could have held his own with all of the philosophical people that live in the ancient world in Greece. In Greece, He could have hung with them, and yet he says, that's not what this message is about. I came, much like a courtroom witness, not with my own opinions, not with my own take on things, but coming to give you the, the, the only the, the gospel facts and nothing else, knowing nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was not interested in discussing men's ideas or insights or His own or anyone else's, but would proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. And not only that, Paul said, I came totally stripped of all self-reliance and confidence. He said, I was weak, I was in fear, I was trembling. In other words, he said, I wasn't preaching in a way that you guys would say, wow, this guy is awesome. And even if Paul had great natural abilities, he didn't rely on them. He relied on the power of God to save through the Word of God. You see, friends, it, is the particu- it isn't the particular man of God that you need. It's not the man of God, the Paul, the Apollos, the Peter. It's the Word of God, the Gospel that you need, and that's all. So make sure whoever's preaching is preaching the Gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is the only thing that has the power to save. So let me ask you, friends, are you satisfied with the word of the cross? Is it enough for you? Or have you been craving something more? Come on, Pastor Craig, can you just move on from the gospel and give us something else? By no means. I'm sure he would say that. I'm going to stick with the gospel because that's the only thing that has the power to save. Charles Spurgeon, one more time, famously said, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would, be, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We preach until our tongues are rotted, tell we would until we would exhaust our lungs and die but never should we be converting sorry but never a soul should be converted unless the holy spirit be the word of god to give it power and convert the human soul i want to close by drawing your attention to the very last verse in our passage verse 5 which i think if you're asking, okay, I, I hear you. Why, why, why does it even matter? I think this is the matter. Why does it matter part of the whole argument? Look at verse 5. It says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. You see, friends, the genuineness of faith and with it eternal life is at stake here. There is a kind of foundation. There is a kind of rest, if you were, that will destroy the superstructure of faith. That's why it's so crucial for our faith not to rest in human wisdom. It's not to rest in ourselves, but in the power of God. Because if it rests in the wisdom of men, it is no faith at all. It's bogus. The only true faith is faith that leads us to this anthem, which we see in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of His glorious grace. If there is any hint of self-exaltation, any hint of self-sufficiency and human effort, it will not have the power to save you from a not guilty verdict on the day of judgment. So can I ask you, is your faith this morning resting? Is it settled? Is its foundation in the wisdom of men or in the power of God? For all of you who aren't sure about that, I'd love to visit with you. Those of you that um, are wondering about faith, I'll be up front for just a little while after the service. I'd, be lo- I'd love to visit with you, but not just me. There are plenty of people here uh, that would talk to you about that. So um, let me pray, and if you uh, will ask the Lord to, to do His work through this message. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to to hear from you and your word. We thank you for a congregation and for um, this church family here at Graceway. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen this body of believers, uh, that you would uh, remind them and settle their foundation, that they would rest not in their wisdom, not in the, uh, the way that we can just put together and do things, but rest in the power of your gospel. It is the only thing that has the power to save, and we ask that you save many through this message of Jesus and him crucified. It's in his glorious name and for your praise, Father, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Would you stand with me, please? Let's close in a song. Before the world was made, before you spoke it to be, you were the King of kings. Yes, you were, yes, you were, and entertaining still, enthroned above all things. Angels and saints cry out, we join them as we sing glory to God. Glory to God, glory to God forever. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. 
Creator God, you gave me breath so I could praise your great and matchless name all my days, all my days. So let my whole life be a blazing offering, a life that shouts and sings the greatness of our King. Glory to God. Glory to God, glory to God forever. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory take my life and let it be yours take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory take my life and let it be yours glory to god glory to god Glory to God forever. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. There is no one higher, no one greater, no one like our God. Savior, great and glorious. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to the benediction verse for today is from second peter chapter 3 verse 18 grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you, brother.